This is what we're going to do. I'm going to read 18 through 23. Then we're going to come back. And we talked about 18 and 19 last week. And so we're going to look at 20 through 23 today. Paul starts off in 18. He says, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, of his great might. Okay, no, no, no. Key in there. Paul writes and he says, what I want you to know, I want God to awaken you to the reality of what he's done for you. I want your eyes to be open. I want you to have spiritual wisdom and insight. I want God to give you spiritual discernment to the reality of what he has done for you. What he has done for you. Now look here, how does Paul describe at the end of 18, or end of 19, he says, according to the working of his great might. And now he's going to explain what is the working of his great might. So God has done something in us. He has changed us. And Paul gives us a, a clear description of exactly what that is or the degree to which he has done this. Now look what he says here in 20. He says, the degree to which he has done it, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the amazing truth. This is the amazing reality. That God has worked this amazing thing in the life of the Christian, in the life of the believer, and it is the same power, the same working that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. Like I, I, I read this, I study this, I look at this, I reflect on this, and I am laid low. I, I, I'm humbled, I'm blown away, it makes me blush. Just the thought that as he's describing this, it's not that God did some work in us, that he did something similar with Jesus. But what he says here, what he says as he describes this is the same thing. The same might that he used in us is the same might that he used when he raised Jesus. Now let's, let's key in on this. Let's walk through this bit by bit. It says that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead. And see that God did something. We recognize and, and, and we know the story. We know the narrative that Jesus came, that he lived a perfectly sinless life, that he died, that he was three days in the grave, and then God raised him up again. We read that. We recognize that. Easter, we, 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 we zero in on that story over and over again over the course of our lives in church. But when we stop, and we look at the tremendous power that God used in doing this. He took a dead thing and made it alive. And then we recognize that he did the same thing for us. That we are living in the daily reality that we live resurrected lives in Jesus Christ. We are living under the, the, the right recognition that the might God used in raising Jesus from the dead. He used in raising you and I from the dead as well. What we're going to find in chapter 2 is that we are dead in our trespasses. We were lost in sin. And God infused us. He raised us with power. But yet we sit and, and, and oh God, that you would waken our hearts to the profound change you've effected in us. Oh God, that you would awaken our hearts to the profound truth of what you have done in us. The change you have effected in us. The change you have effected for us in terms of eternity. Where we're headed from where we were headed. 
according to the working of his great might. God worked in Christ. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now look what he says next. He raised him from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You see, it's, it's not enough for Paul to go in and to summarily describe what took place in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what he also does here is he gives us an indication that God did not only just raise him from the dead, but in so doing, he satisfied prophecy. He satisfied prophecy. Flip over to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, we read, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Until I make your enemies a footstool. And so God is laying the groundwork. He laid the groundwork for our salvation before the foundation of the world. He knew that he was going to use Christ as the deliverer for humanity. And he established that his word in Psalm 110 would find reality, would find truth, would find fulfillment ultimately in Jesus Christ. And this is what he said. He says, he has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now the author of Hebrews, in this great description of Jesus he does in Hebrews 1, we key in on around about this same idea. Quoting the same idea, starting in Hebrews 1.3, he says, speaking of Jesus, that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is displaying tremendous power. He is very God of very God. Now look here. He says, after making purification for sins, after Jesus made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of Magiers that sin and death is no more. That sin and death no longer hold sway over humanity. For all those who would believe in Jesus Christ, there is freedom, there is forgiveness, there is redemption, there is reconciliation between man and God through the accomplished salvific work, saving work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen? Now that's amazing. This is, this is some of what we read in here. So we see what the Psalms this reports, we see what the author of Hebrews reports. But check this out. Jesus himself references this same idea twice in the book of Matthew alone. In the book of Matthew, let's, let's flip over to Matthew twenty-two, forty-four. Now, if we skip back a little bit before that, we see in 41 that Jesus is meeting with the Pharisees. Now, 41 says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, if you want to know in an evangelistic setting where someone stands, you can choose to go about it in a couple of ways. You can ask them and say, you know, what's your religious background? Or what do you think will happen to you when you die? But if you want to go straight for the jugular, for the heart that determines where we are headed, where we stand in terms of eternity, then a question more direct is, is the same question Jesus poses. Where do you stand on Jesus? Where do you stand on the Christ, he asks. So they respond. Hmm. The son of David, they suppose. So he says to them, Well, how then is it that David in the spirit called him Lord, called the Christ Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And they were stumped. Jesus is pointing the Pharisees, he's pointing the readership of the Gospel of Matthew towards the reality that he is 
king, that he become the one in whom salvation comes, that Jesus reigns supreme. Now flip over, Matthew 26. Matthew 26, and looking at verse 64, we read kind of the same deal. Jesus is heading towards the crucifixion. He is there before the high priest. He's there before the council, and they are peppering him with questions. They're asking him these questions. 62, the high priest stands up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remains silent, unmoved. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. If there were ever a question asked with a more pregnant, ununderstood meaning or misunderstood meaning from the part of the one who asks, I've yet to find it. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, he says to Jesus. Now on, you will see the Son of Man seated, check out where, at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. High priest tore his robes and said, he is utter blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard blasphemy. The high priest recognizes Jesus to be claiming divinity for himself. The high priest recognizes that when Jesus gives testimony that he will sit at the right hand of power, what he's describing himself to be the Christ. He's describing himself to be the Messiah. He's describing himself to be equal with God. Now what he's saying in this, you see some of you suppose that in this description of sitting at the right hand that that we figure God the Father in this massive, ornate, beautiful throne. And that that somewhere down to the right side, somewhere down lower on a smaller pedestal, there sits this glorified footstool. And so in terms of my house, we have this large red chair, which which is throne-esque. Like I get to rule when I sit in this chair until my kids dogpile me. And then we have this footstool that goes with it. Now the footstool is on wheels. And so if anybody gets overzealous and seeking to overcome the footstool, Bam, that footstool takes off. They end up on the ground. What Jesus is sitting on here is not some demoted place of importance. What Jesus' description, it being at the right hand, Jesus' description, it being here at the right hand of God in the heavenly places is a description of equality with God. It is a place of rule. It is a place of honor. It is a place of being entrusted by virtue of the same essence of, of God and what God has, we read in Hebrews 1.3 that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, that after making purifications for since he sat down, he declared it to be a finished work at the right hand of God. What we see here, that the same power God worked in us from the dead and in seating him with this tremendous sense of finality and bold declaration of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It was finished in him. It is finished in us. But he's not finished yet. See, some of us, we we read this. I don't know if we've been in church too long or what the deal is, but we are unmoved by this. We're, we're, We're unmoved. We're not shocked. We're not laid low. We read this, and it is old hat, common, plain. It's just normal for us. 
pray that God would awaken our hearts. I pray that God would destroy our norms, that God would completely move in and do a work of spiritual awakening in our hearts that he might awaken us to the reality, to the implications of all that lays wait for us and all those whom we share the gospel with, that this tremendous power that is at work in us would surrender their lives, they would declare his excellencies and their impoverished nature. They would confess their sins and accept his forgiveness. That's the power that's at work in us and is at work in all who profess faith in Jesus Christ. But look here. Paul moves to further describe the position of Jesus Christ. He said he's been raised from the dead. He's been seated at the right hand of the heavenly places. Verse 21, he says that that place is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Now we read this. We read this and we, we tend to go to these jumps of, oh man, amen, Jesus is far above my boss. Oh, amen, Jesus is far above my wife. Oh, amen, Jesus is far above all those who would seek to do damage to me. And we keep it kind of in this temporal sphere. We keep it in this realm of, of our earthly reality. We keep it in terms of what we can see and not in terms of. Of course, Paul recognized that Jesus is over all earthly rulers, that Jesus reigns supreme over everybody. He's already told us that he sits at the right hand in the heavenly places. But what this is a reference to is Jesus sits exalted over all demonic powers, that Jesus sits exalted over all spiritual beings. And so when he moves through this, this series of references and this compounding and escalating list of references, what he's talking about is Jesus sits exalted over every spiritual being, those named and those not yet named, those we understand and those we don't yet understand. You see, what he's making a reference to, what he's exposing, what he's bringing us to the reality of is that Jesus sits as God, sits as an authority over all the demonic. So you say, Pastor, do you believe in the demonic? Do you believe in the presence of, uh, of demons and these types of things? Because that, and you should as well. You should believe in them as well. Our scriptures tell us that full on one third of, of the angels fell and now worship and now serve another fallen angel. They, they serve Satan. They work to his good pleasure. They work to his end. They work to glorify themselves. And many in our commuting, in our communities, unwittingly worship them. They worship the false idols of success. They worship false religions which seek to elevate man, which seek to undo the work of Jesus Christ in Christianity. Every religion that does not ultimately profess God, the Christian conception of God, and Jesus Christ as his son, this Trinitarian understanding of God, every religion that works against that is ultimately in submission to the demonic. And this is what Jesus gives us an indication of. This is what Jesus and, 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 and is in charge of. This is what Paul gives us an indication of, that Jesus sits high and exalted above all of these things. 
Jesus sits high and exalted above all Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus sits high and exalted above all Mormons. Jesus sits high and exalted above all Muslims. Jesus sits high and exalted above all humanists. Jesus sits high single thing that is opposed or that works against the works of God. He sits and he reigns supreme. The same work that God used to raise Jesus from the dead and seat him at the right hand of the heavenly places and exercise rule over all the demonic, it's the same power he placed inside of us that he used to change us. Now look at the permanency of this change. He says that it is not only in this age, but also in the age to come. You see, there were likely those reading this letter in Ephesus that said, Oh, Paul. They could have said, Oh, Paul. We understand this today, but what about as things change in the future? And so Paul said, friend, I want you to understand something. That Jesus sits, that he reigns supreme over all of these things, and that he does so eternally. That there will be no shadow of change. There will be no ability of change. That Jesus' supremacy is eternal. It is for this age and also for the age to come. Now look what else God did here raises him up. He exalts him. He establishes him forevermore over this. And now look here, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet. Now this is a reference to Psalm 8-6. Psalm 8-6 says this, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now this is the amazing thing. God moves in creation. He speaks and the world springs into action. He speaks and he creates the the heavens and the earth, the sun and the moon. He creates all these things. He creates man. And in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, he establishes man. He gives him dominion. He gives him authority over those things which God creates. He allows man to move in and name things. It says, go and subdue. Go and subdue it. No, the interesting thing we know is, how does man do? Does he do well or does he do poorly? That's right, he does poorly. He does so poorly, in fact, that man chooses himself over God. Man gets removed from the garden. And man chooses to sin against God. Now, what we see in this is that here, Jesus, as the second Adam, perfects that which the first Adam failed in. Jesus here is the second Adam, displays perfect dominion, perfect rule over all things. He places all of these under his foot. Now what this gives us here is a picture of Jesus sitting with his foot extended firmly over the throat of sin and death. He's bringing all things underneath his foot. He is giving us this understanding, this picture, that he is having the posture of a victor. He holds his foe in steady submission underneath the prominence, the prominent display of the power that God has entrusted to him. Jesus has all things underneath his feet. He's got all things underneath his feet. But i got to be honest, this next part puzzles me. This next part puzzles me. So you've got God moving in this tremendous display. 
takes Jesus, he raises him from the dead. He takes Jesus, he seats him at the right hand in the heavenly places. He takes Jesus and he <laughs> seats him there and it's described as being above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named. He takes Jesus, he seats him there and we find out that it's not only in this age but in the age to come. He takes Jesus and he puts all things under his feet and then this amazing, scandalous thing comes out next. He takes Jesus and gives him to the church. He gives Jesus to the church. Experience with the church is. Now, I'm not talking about Ridgecrest. I'm talking about Universal. I'm talking about this larger collection of churches. But churches, it almost seems that we've gone out of our way to give ourselves a black eye in terms of our community. It seems that churches have almost gone out of our way to display ourselves as being as unattractive as possible, to being as petty as possible, to being as selfish as possible. But yet it is to the church that God gave Jesus. Why? Why? The fault is not in God. It's not that God made this colossal mistake that he is giving this gift to a child that's not quite ready. I think about my my father-in-law. My father-in-law is, is uh, when, when our eldest was a, a young boy, he bought him this uh, slide deal that you put a car on top of, you put the child on top of the little riding toy, and they just go zooming down the bottom of it. Now, Bryce isn't a great walker <laughs> at this point, and now we expect to put him on this deal and propel him at jet-like speeds down a ramp. It works great when you're holding on to him, But the moment you let go, I mean, he bails when he hits the bottom. Next time we turn around, he buys him a battery-powered riding car. I mean, like, it's just the idea of age-appropriate gifts was somehow lost on him. God gives Jesus to the church. It's not a case of bad gift-giving. It's not a case of bad judgment. God gives Jesus to the church. It's a case, church that received Jesus, not the God that gave him. The problem is on the part of the way the church received Jesus. See, the church in some sense received Jesus and said, we get to do with him, we get to make him whatever we want him to be. As much as it satisfies us, and tickles our fancy. And so the church ran, and, and, and they had the Jesus of popular culture. They had the Jesus that, that satisfied them, that resembled them, and so they kept those that they didn't want outside of their four walls. But we recognize that the Jesus God gave to the church can only be the Jesus who's head over all things. 
So this means the Jesus that comes to the church is head over me. This Jesus who comes to the church is head over you. This Jesus who comes to the church is head over those people that you don't particularly want to worship alongside. This Jesus who comes to the church is head over all of our things. And we line up in submission to him because that's the only place we can be. That is the only way that we can rightly relate to this Jesus who is given to the church. Now let me show you the degree to which God gave him. He's using the same word, the same idea that John used in John 3, 16. And we know how that goes. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave. That he gave his only son. To what degree did he give him? He gave him to the degree that Jesus surrendered his life. Just as Jesus surrendered his life for the individual, for the world in that perspective, we recognize that Jesus is given to do what? To purify the church. Jesus is given to claim the church. Jesus is given to begin the church. The church rises and falls on its submission to Jesus. Look what it says here. The church is his body. If I find my body moving one way and my head moving another, I've got problems. I can't continue on that trajectory very long before I'm going to do gross bodily harm to myself. The body that is the church cannot move in an opposite direction from the head that is Christ. Or else it will also do gross bodily harm. Now, the particular church, the particular church, Ridgecrest, we must submit to Jesus. He must line up his head over all things. We owe it to Jesus to reference the church because the church is his body. We owe it to God and when we display our feelings towards God, our feelings toward Jesus and his sacrifice with how we treat his church. Now this, is, this is both good and bad news. It's great news because we recognize that the reason that you and I are able to be a part of the church, the reason that he's able to unite the joring factions, these people who have different ideas and understandings of the ways that things should be done, the reason that he's able to do these things is because of the shed blood and the sacrifice of Jesus and uniting peoples and identities that are naturally opposed to one another. In our culture, in our world, we find them being opposed to one another and they are united in Jesus Christ. It's this amazing thing that takes place. He takes the sinner, he gives him a new heart, he makes him alive and he makes him a part of his body, the church. But how we feel about Jesus is displayed in how we reverence his church. The laziness, the approach we take towards gathering and worship with other believers, the, the approach we take towards serving and sacrificing for the church. You aren't a member of the church universal. You are called into active service in the church particular of your identification with him and his sacrifice as it is made real for you in your life. But he calls you to do life with other Christians in the church particular. Recognizing that Jesus is head over this. And look, we recognize that all the inadequacies in each and every one of us, and friends, they are many. 
they are many, that Christ is working to fill up those things. So this is the difficulty. Recognize for some of you, you haven't been engaging in the church with the understanding that it is Christ's body. You've been engaging with the church with the understanding that you can just make it or choose to do it however you want to. In that, in that, you disregard Christ. I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. But what I want you to understand is that we owe it. I owe it and you owe it to God and to Jesus Christ to find churches where we might invest ourselves to the nth degree. Now, you are never going to find the perfect church. And friends, if you find the perfect church, don't join because you're going to ruin it for everybody else that's there. Like your, your joining of that church is probably going to be what sets it into the wrong direction. Serving with other people is always going to cost you something. Living with other people is always going to cost you something. If you don't believe that, you've never been a part of a family larger than one. Recognize that God calls us to sacrifice ourselves and our selfish desires for the good of others. To come and submit underneath him in his leadership. And he is filling all of our inadequacies, struggling, and you can't seem to find your niche here at Ridgecrest. And come and talk to someone in leadership. Come see if we can help you find a way to be integrated, a, a way to do well in this local body. But af- after all those conversations are exhausted, and after much prayer and deliberation and meeting together and praying together, we still find, you still find, that you are unable to glorify God in this place. I think you owe it to him to go elsewhere. I think you owe it to him to go elsewhere. If you are unable to reverence Jesus Christ in your display of involvement in the local body, then you need to find a local body where you are able to display that. So this is what we're going to do. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to ask ourselves as a body of believers, the body of Jesus Christ in our community. If the call for the individual Christian is to be a part of that body and to do that and to embrace that, how do we as a local assembly, as a particular part of of the church universal, how do we manifest that? And so what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is really spend some time praying together, walking through some passages that try and get at the heart of what God is calling us to be in Greenville, Texas. And so my prayer for our body is that over the next couple of weeks that you would take time out of these services, so during the regular course of your week, to pray, to ask God, God, how would you see me serve in the manifestation of your body here in Greenville, Texas. God, how would you see me and my family sacrifice for your renown? Isn't he worth it? Doesn't he deserve it? To raise Jesus from the dead. To set him 
at the right hand in the heavenly places to give him a name that is above every name for all ages to come. That power is the same power that he displayed in saving you and bringing you into everlasting life. In Paul's prayer, Paul's prayer going back to verse 17 is that God would would give us this knowledge of who he is and then in 18 that he would enlighten the eyes of our heart, that he would open our eyes to the tremendous reality of what he's done. So my hope is that as we reflect on the reality of what God has done for us, that it drives us to serve him. Not out of this sense of guilt or trying to, calls us to be a people who are zealous for good works. That as we reflect on the gracious nature of our God, that we respond with thanksgiving and gratefulness back to him. And our desire is to work, not in terms of earning our salvation, but in terms of returning worship and adoration back to our God. Oh, that God would give us insight. Oh, that God would give us clarity. Oh, that God would give us a sense of the power that he has worked in us, that the prayer Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus would be true for us, that God would enlighten our eyes, that he would show our hearts the depths to which he did a work of salvation in our hearts and radically transformed every part of who we are.